Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Well, I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're joined by uh, our friend uh, and frequent guest and commentator, Rebecca Heinrichs. Uh, as our listeners know, Rebecca is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. She specializes in U.S. national security policy. Uh, she has served on the Strategic Posture Commission, uh, the Bipartisan Commission, as a civilian appointee. Uh, she's frequently at the Pentagon. She has been at the White House consulting policymakers on the urgent issues that confront America in foreign policy and national security issues. Her particular specialty, again, as our listeners know, is ballistic missile defense, but she has lots of other important insights on the issues that face America today, particularly in national security and defense policy. You'll, you've seen her and heard her, uh, no doubt on the news, uh, on CNN, on Fox News, Fox Business, and other major outlets. Um, she has lent her thoughtful voice to public conversation and discourse now and is having a significant impact on the way people think about America's position and posture in the world. Delighted to say she is an Ashbrook alum and currently serves on the Ashbrook board, uh, where we uh, so uh, value her experience and her work for us there. Rebecca, thanks for joining us on The American Idea. So happy to be here. Thank you. Um, the world, uh, we have you on as a lot of, and CNN and Fox have you on when there's crisis. It seems like you're on a lot these days. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of crisis in the world. Let's go to the first one that's in, right in front of people's eyes and ears the Israel-Hamas crisis. What's the situation there? Give us an update and the, some of the important things that you are seeing now as the conflict has dragged on. Sure. Well, right now, um, Israel, the Israeli government is really uh, in this terrible <clears throat> dilemma. Israelis prize every single Israeli citizen and Hamas has still uh, more than 150, I don't remember, the 180, I think at this point, I think we only got 30 out from the last um, two rounds of hostage re hostages returned to Israel. And then there's some Thai hostages who were also uh, returned. But um, Hamas is, and other splinter Islamist uh, militant groups are holding Israelis, uh, civilians, children, their mothers, the elderly, uh, hostage, and they want um, Palestinian terrorists who have been convicted, tried and convicted of crimes, who are uh, prisoners in Israel. They're, they want they want uh, swaps for for individuals who are in Israel, and they want prolonged ceasefire. Of course, a ceasefire permits the leaders of Hamas to hide, to leave, it gives them opportunities to to get a better position militarily. Um, it allows Hamas to lay different um, kinds of weapons that are very 
dangerous for the IDF, the Israeli soldiers who are coming in and, and trying to, to destroy Hamas. So that's the current situation. Um, some of these, we're just hearing news about some of the things that these Israelis endured while in captivity, and it's it's horrible. I mean, Hamas is seeking to maximize human suffering um, because, you know, you and I and our listeners, we're, we are all part of this um, moment in history, and we are also the target audience. Um, they're trying to manipulate our own emotions and so that we uh, participate in either pressuring our government, pressuring the Israeli government to to negotiate and come up with a permanent ceasefire. So that that is the current situation. I think a lot of our listeners wonder, I know I certainly do, um, from Hamas's point of view, what do they hope to gain by this attack? Obviously, at such a, a large scale and such horrific consequences, they knew they were going to provoke an Israeli response, and it was going to be a massive response, especially with Netanyahu as prime minister. What did they think strategically they were going to gain, and do you think they've gained it? Well, remember that Hamas is really um, a proxy for the Iranian government. So you kind of have to sort of zoom the lens out and, and understand that Iran has some interests here. Iran um, is certainly seeking to thwart um, continued improvements, diplomatic relations between the other Gulf countries, specifically the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. So the United States has built on the Trump administration's Abraham Accords to try to to bring about improvements with these with, between Israel and these other Gulf uh, partner nations with the United States, and and Iran wants to thwart that. So um, this obviously creates a major problem for for the the Arab other Arab nations, um, and it creates um, uh, obviously a horrible problem for the Netanyahu government and for um, the Israeli the nation at large. And um, and meanwhile. Iranian proxies are shooting at U.S. forces who are deployed in both Iraq and Syria. So there's 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 sort of lots going on right now in the region that's tied to this horrific attack against um, the Jewish people on October 7th. So very specifically, the, the hard thing that Americans have a hard time understanding, too, is Hamas really is ideologically committed to the destruction of the state of Israel. So they... I mean, what do they want? They want to they want to kill Jews. I mean, simply um, sort of bluntly stated. And and so they obviously achieved that. But then they want they want more. They want more um, goods coming into Gaza. They want more territory. They want more international leverage. They they want more power. And so um, and you would think it wouldn't work to your point. Israel is going to launch this you know massive response against um, Gaza. But you've got, you know, individuals across Western capitals coming out in the streets and supporting the Palestinian and even Hamas's case. Um, so they're really doing the bidding of, of, of Hamas. What about on the Israeli side? Now that they've begun the military counterattack and it's continuing and has intensified, what's Israel's strategic goal? So, and, and, you know, again, get, getting back to that really, really tough dilemma, they 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 value each individual precious human life. Um, and so they they really sort of very specifically are trying to get as many hostages as they can out, can get out. Um, but of course, there's again, it's sort of a it's it's a really big problem because as 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 Israel values these lives so much, they're incredibly valued. 
valuable for Hamas to use them, yes, as shields, um, um, tactics to try to get more things. And so broadly, sort of a strategic objective, you got to destroy all of Hamas. You have to, in terms of their leadership, um, their infrastructure, their those tunnels that they have built over many years where they are um where they can get weapons from the Iranian government through through those tunnels and so that's that that is going to happen Israel is going to destroy um, Hamas's ability to reorganize and to do anything like we saw on October 7th again and then they're going to have to come up with sort of then what and that that's the big sort of piece that people um you know are anxious to know the answer to and I think it's going to be something like um you know the, the the Israeli government will will come up with a plan for what to do with Gaza. I mean, I'm I'm in terms of a governing structure. Remember, Pal the, the Gazans continued to support Hamas. There's this sort of myth that Hamas is not supported by Gazans, but they were elected um, by the by Gazans and very difficult, obviously, to get really clear polling. But regardless, the polling that comes out continues to be high um, in terms of of Hamas. So it's a it's a it's a major problem. For, from the perspective of Israel to make sure this doesn't happen again. And the military offensive, just in terms of the actual gains and on the ground, I've some people have said, I certainly have heard it, that Israel hopes with this military offensive, as you say, to knock out the Hamas infrastructure, the leadership. And then there's some question, what what do you do with Gaza? What will Israel do with Gaza? Some people have suggested that Israel might actually turn the northern half of the Gaza Strip in kind of, into a kind of demilitarized zone, a DMZ like we have in Korea, where it's just a no-go as a buffer between Hamas and the south of Gaza and Israel. Um, do you see something like that happening, or do you foresee another arrangement? I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm sort of um, of the mind that this is where the U.S. should actually take a really light touch and let the Israeli government um, decide what it's going to do. It's very capable. It, it's the one who's highly motivated um, to, to solve the problem. They're under enormous international pressure and scrutiny to do something that um, obviously makes sense for, for those who are innocent in the political sense, um, civilians who are not supportive of Hamas living in Gaza. Um, hard to know how many of those people are. Certainly the children um, constitute uh, folks in that category. And so they have to create some sort of humane situation. But 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 people should remember, you know, Israel left Gaza in 2005. And so the Gazans have have had the opportunity to create a life for themselves and to govern themselves. And they continue to to elect Hamas and um, and and choose this Islamist, you know, um, heavily militarized. Essentially, they've Hamas has turned Gaza into a militarized zone already. And um, and so it's a, it's a really big problem. What I will say would be a terrible idea, which I don't think the Israeli government will go along with, is this idea of this sort of multinational collaborative effort to govern Gaza. That to me sounds like a nightmare of utopian aspirations that won't work well. So for our listeners, what should they be looking for, thinking about, for the next two weeks to a month of this conflict? So the relative short term, what are you looking at that we ought to be looking at? Um, I, I would say, you know, one, first of all, 
everything is so emotional in the news. So when you watch the news, I would just um, encourage people to to really, really try to understand um, not to fall for the uh, the urge that a lot of news media has to sort of make moral equivalences between the two. They're suffering on both sides. And so who can say really who's right and wrong? We just need a ceasefire. So um, and it's just, uh, it's dangerous. Um, Israel uh, is a sovereign nation and our security benefits by its security. And so what I'm looking for is Israel to resume um, uh, strong military options after this temporary uh, pause to get the, the the some of these hostages out, and then to continue destroying the Hamas infrastructure. Um, the a lot of the news uh, on a number of civil of casualties is coming from Hamas and being repeated in the news. So I would just sort of understand that when you're hearing this, to to take it with a huge grain of salt. We don't really know um, the number of um, deaths coming out, especially if it's coming from Hamas. And and then and then you know this is going to drag on for a little while because Israel is still going to want as many hostages out as they can. So we'll probably I'm expecting another round um, potentially of further negotiations. Last point I would just say: keep in mind these prisoners that Israel is releasing back into back into Gaza. These again. These were these are terrorists. These are these are individuals who attempted to to uh, harm IDF soldiers. Um, they were convicted in a court of law, found guilty, and imprisoned. And so I, I've heard quite a bit of misinformation on that. Like we're sort of just swapping sort of hostages that were snatched by the two um, entities, and that's simply not true either. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks, your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. Obviously, while this conflict is going on and front and center in a lot of people's attentions, it doesn't mean that other conflicts and crises don't exist, um, right? So, for example, I know you've been very closely following and have been to uh, the Ukraine-Russia area to think about uh, the conflict that continues there, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. For our listeners, uh, what's the update on the situation there? Well, um, so an another thing, a, a useful tool whenever you think about what's happening in, in the world, it can seem so complex, um, it's hard to kind of keep track. But one one uh, piece of advice I would give is look at the, look how the major powers are acting. And then you can kind of the other the other sort of crises fit into this into this big chessboard. So um, Russia is continuing its war against Ukraine. I just saw in um, some um, Russian media translated by a friend of mine 
that Putin just approved a massive military spending increase for the next year. And so he is not slowing down in terms of his determination to continue to invest heavily in the Russian military, even as Ukraine has done a magnificent job of degrading the Russian military. Putin continues to be determined to, to increase um, its his military strength and capabilities. And, and then China is backing Russia um, diplomatically, economically, as Russia continues to be sanctioned. Um, uh, China is, 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 is helping to aid to absorb some of that with China, increasing trade um, and economic ties with the Russians. And then also we have found material support, um, um, component parts for their weapons in, in Russia to be used against Ukraine from China. And um, so the, the specific situation is, you know, Ukraine has done um, a great job of regaining a lot of the territory that, that Russia initially took whenever it launched its invasion in 2022, its full-scale invasion and try to sack Kiev. Unfortunately, they're stuck. They're sort of in this stalemate. The counteroffensive was not as successful as Ukraine wanted it to be. Um, I have lots of blame to push around for that. Um, my big complaint, as I've told your, your listeners before, is that uh, the Biden administration has not been fully committed to Ukrainian victory. There is a strong sort of risk aversion and um, fear of, of escalation. And to the extent that the, essentially the weapons that have been provided have, have really been approved slowly. Um, there's been a lot of wait and see to how the Russians behave. And then, then even, even the longer range strike systems that Ukraine needs to hit, um, a lot of the logistics and weapon systems that are right on the other side of Russian territory, the weapons that we have provided Ukraine are just, just too short to, to get there. And it's all by design. And so un unfortunately, uh, it, it's, it's, it's resulting in a long protracted war of attrition, which that is not a good situation for Ukraine. Um, they will run out of human beings, um, men, soldiers, um, a lot more women now are fighting. Initially, all the women and children went to Poland um, and left that country. But now we're um, seeing that they need more people to fight this war. And, and so they're stuck. And so my, my last point here briefly before I get to your next question was, you know, what am I expecting? I'm, I'm concerned at this point that the United States with Germany, and this has been reported in some German papers, are now going to begin to pressure uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky to take a deal and, and to tell them, look, like this can't go on forever. You've done a great job, but we can't we can't support you indefinitely. That would be a disaster until Ukraine can actually push the Russians fully out of their territory. But I fear that 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 is becoming a political reality. So that kind of political settlement, would it mean, for example, that Russia would have some kind of control or even sovereignty over the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass region, which you, Putin has claimed uh, as Russian territory? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not I don't know the, the, the nature of the final, uh, you know, where those lines would be drawn. But considering that Russia still has taken an, an enormous, you think about in 2014 when they took Crimea, how much more territory they have now. I mean, this would be a um, a significant territorial expansion on the part of the Russians through force. And, and this is Ukrainian sovereign territory. And this is not how, um, this is this is not something that, um, that the United States or NATO obviously uh, wanted to, ha to happen. But unless you, unless you arm Ukraine such that Ukraine can actually push the Russians out, especially since NATO and the United States back, you know, as the, as the, the biggest backer of the NATO alliance. Um, if, if we don't want to 
be the ones as combatants in this in this war, which I fully agree that we should not be. You have to you you have to arm Ukraine in such a way that it can fight the way NATO would if NATO were fighting, and we have not done that. So it would be it would be a significant territorial gain for the Russians. Um, and 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 so can I, I can I, I just ask you, Rebecca, on that question because um, you mentioned the Germans as part of this. Um, group that's pushing Ukraine perhaps to have some kind of political settlement. What is, you've been to Europe recently, what's the mood in Europe about the conflict? Obviously, when it first started, it seemed like all the Europeans were on board against the Russians in support of Ukraine. Um, Poland obviously has taken a number of refugees, as you were just saying. Uh, does that mood continue? Does that sentiment continue in Europe and European capitals? Or have we seen some shift? It's a really good question. So, yeah, I've been to Lithuania and Poland since uh, Russia first, um, or this last invasion. I would say the last invasion. Ukrainians will correct me. They say this is not. It's not just the invasion that they've been invading our country for a long time. So, um, since tw since twenty twenty two February twenty twenty two's invasion, I've been to both Poland and and Lithuania, <laughs> and and of course the Baltic nations, Lithuania being one, um, are are very concerned, very concerned. That the Russians, um, not only if they regain this territory, regain Ukrainian territory, they will not stop. I mean, Russia, Putin's ultimate, Putin's goal is to break up the NATO alliance, weaken it in any way he can, politically break it up. No, like no kidding through um, gray zone warfare, meaning it's just sort of you know below the threshold of which a country would feel compelled to respond in some sort of no kidding military kinetic way. Um, so they're very, very concerned. I mean, I would say the mood, I mean, I just met with the Estonians are awesome people. The Estonians are tough and patriotic and pro-America, great people. Um, I, the mood is, I would say, I would sum it up as for the Eastern Europeans and Central Europeans. So Poland and then, you know, the Baltic nations, um, Finland, you know, they're worried about the United States not being committed to NATO. Um, and the United States remains the coalescing force. We, I mean, that you know, you, you hear people say that sort of sounds naive Reaganism that you know the United States has to lead and other countries will follow. But it it is the reality when you talk to these countries. They simply, um, if the United States withdrew from its leadership role in NATO, it would be toast. These countries would be toast. These small Baltic countries. I mean, they would fight valiantly, but they can't, they could not endure what Ukraine just endured simply because of the small size of their country. And, and so they're, they're very uncomfortable. Um, and, and you can see they they have more courage to speak up and be, be louder whenever they know the United States is fully committed. And then, and then it starts to kind of get quieter again, if they start to get nervous about what the United States is going to do. Now, the Germans the Germans um, have been a challenge this throughout this whole time because, to the extent I've been critical of our own government and of President Biden's reluctance, the Germans have been ten times worse, much more reluctant. You know, Germany um, simply always holds out hope that things can improve with NATO and Russia, and it's like the hope that just endures forever. And if you talk to the polls, they, you know they've got all kinds of reasons for that um, that they're concerned about Germany. Um, having too much um, hope um, in in Russia actually becoming a partner rather than an adversary. 
So um, it's discouraged. I would say they're discouraged and uncomfortable with a lot of the politics coming out of the United States right now um, and and beginning to be worried about the United States's willingness to be committed as the leader of the NATO alliance in the free world. So let me ask you the same question I asked about Israel and Gaza. What do you see for the Ukraine-Russia conflict in the short term, say the next month to three months that our listeners, again, should be paying attention to? So what I'm tell I will tell your listeners exactly whenever I go on to, in Capitol Hill and give my briefings, I say what what my advice is. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but what my advice is, what Congress should be doing is demanding that the that we resource Ukraine to win, to prevail. This long protracted war without having a clear strategic objective is is terrible. Um, it and and. I I don't blame Americans for saying, when does this end? This seems like it's going to go on forever, and I'm not quite sure where the end is. And so um, what I have been advocating for is um, um, pressing the White House to include in the next uh, batch of weapons, long-range strike systems. So they're long-range, they're called attackums. So look for attackums to be in the next um, in, uh, package. And they should press press for those. I don't have a problem with Congress saying, you know the economic aid or the sort of um the some of the some of the other economic aid it's only about it's about 40% of these ukraine packages if that gets cut down a little bit and so you pressure the europeans to provide more for that that's fine um but but what the united states does really really well that is indispensable are weapons and being that coalescing force so i would be pressing for that um and and really trying I mean, then of course the american election is going to be I mean, it's the world for Ukraine. How I mean, who the next president is going to be, and how determined they are to helping Ukraine um, prevail, get their sovereign territory back, and then be be a, a strong sovereign nation to be able to provide their own defense. Um, I mean, that's going to be the name of the game for for Ukraine. Um, uh, and so, those are the things I'm looking for. And then, and then, really, um, um, again, pr- press the White House to 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 fully support them, and then refuse to let the White House pressure you. Ukraine to uh, to end this conflict on terms that are so unfavorable to Ukraine and so favorable to Russia. And I'm concerned that because there's been some loud voices on the American right on ending support for Ukraine, even though there's the the number of, of members of Congress are few, but they're loud, that the White House could blame those few on ending support for Ukraine. Um, so you can see all the domestic politics that bleed in over into no kidding um, geo uh, strategic problems, and and I think that would be just a major disaster. There should be strong bipartisan support to help Ukraine prevail. Um, meanwhile, on the other side of the globe, there's still China. China, as you already mentioned, has uh, increased its ties and connections with Russia, and, uh, economic aid and the rest to help offset the sanctions that have been posed on the Russians. What are the Chinese up to these days, uh, particularly in their region? Oh, goodness. So um, the Chinese, uh, well, they're not staying in their region. That's part of the problem. So um it would be easier, some of my colleagues will say, you know, since China is the number one threat, we should be totally just focused on the Indo-Pacific theater and really focus there. The, the problem, though, is because China now has a global vision, Xi Jinping has a global vision that he's 
he's really kind of got his hands in pots across the, the across the globe. So just give one example. Um, as we're dealing with Russia, Ukraine, and Gaza, and and Indians are are arming their proxy nations. Um, it was a Chinese flag, specifically a Hong Kong flagged ship that the Baltic nations, just being reported, so I'm not sharing anything, you know, just publicly reported, um, um, said that it was a, a, a Hong Kong, so China, flagged ship that they believe uh, broke that undersea cable um, between the Baltic in the Baltic Sea, in the Baltic Sea, when all this is going on. So there it was an undersea cable that was just broken and it was a Russian flagship and a China flagship together. And it looked like it was the China one that that probably destroyed this intentionally undersea cable. So there, I mean, China is in, getting bolder in what it's willing, you know, that's, oh, it's, so that's not confirmed, but, um, uh, but that has been what, what has been reported. And so that is something that still is being investigated, but um, it should not be surprising to know that, that that is what's going on. So China and Russia are continuing cooperative military uh, training exercises together. Uh, China continues to, Taiwan has an election coming up. China is pressuring the Taiwan government to not elect a strong Taiwan sovereignty uh, president and to be um, more uh, conciliatory toward mainland China. Um, Xi Jinping just visited President Biden, and um, uh, we we essentially got, I don't think this is an overstatement, um, nothing out of it, um, except perhaps, you know, more attempts at um, calming our relationship sort of diplomatically, but without requiring Chinese behavior to change. China is still using water cannons against the Philippines. I mean, they used really powerful sonar against Australian divers just last week that caused some temporary damage to the hearing of uh, Australian divers. And so um, China continues to use aggressive behavior against U.S. Um, uh, sh ships and aircraft and against our allies in the region. And um, it, it really has gotten really terrible. Uh, and, and we've not seen any any improvement in that area in the last uh, year or so. Yeah, I was going to follow up and ask on that. Um, the last time we talked, you talked about the Chinese Communist Party as being perhaps the most significant threat that the United States faces, not only because it has the intention, but because it has the capacity to do damage to the United States. In the last um, months and looking forward, the Chinese Communist Party, has it grown stronger and more dangerous? or weaker and less dangerous? Um, third option, weaker and more dangerous. <laughs> so That's interesting. Um, what, what do you mean? So the economy is finally starting to, so China has been rising economically um, for decades. And, and it's been, you know, supposed to surpass the United States as the largest globe, you know, um, economic engine. Um, it's beginning to flag. It's um, part of the, part of the reason for that, large reason for that, um, is the direct policies of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. As Xi has taken over what used to be pretty semi-autonomous um, um, uh, private industry in China, has been taking it over. I mean, the, the government has been um, censoring all kinds of things, uh, um, just making it very, very difficult for these companies to operate independently as private, private enterprise. And so it's the economy, and you can see that mostly in their real estate, their real estate has been, I mean, a terrible real estate collapse. 
Um, and, and so their economy is beginning to flag. China wants more investment in China. Western capitals and Western companies are beginning to look at what's going on in China and saying, this is not a really stable, predictable way to do business. Um, China has been prohibiting uh, Chinese nationals from leaving China. So if you're a Chinese American, but so you're Chinese still, but you're even if you're an American, I mean, they've got they've got um, prohibitions on them leaving the country on many of them. I know this was something that re many Republican members of Congress tried to get President Biden to raise with Xi Jinping, um, but they're, they're not allowed to leave. And so it's becoming a very, very dangerous place to do business. And so some have said, well, great, if, if China is beginning to struggle economically, maybe it's not so much of a threat. But Xi Jinping is still committed to this grand legacy in making China supplant the United States as the global leader, the leader, the, the country that is that is moving events and affecting events that help China. And so things like invading Taiwan and from Xi's mind, uniting Taiwan with mainland China, he's still committed to doing that. And so if the economy is doing badly and if China begins to do to do worse, Xi Jinping might actually decide to do something very brazen and dangerous to increase, um, you know, Chinese nationalism and sentiment to that he is a strong and um, and competent leader. And so that's what I'm worried about, is that, you know, if things might he might have more patience if their economy is doing well, he might be getting impatient to do something great. Um, uh, to try to continue to stir up this Chinese nationalism. Wow, uh, that's a that's a sober sober thought, um, but important for us, for our listeners, and for American policymakers to consider. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for taking uh, us on a tour of the world crises. Um, uh, we really appreciate your thoughts, your insight. Enormously helpful for helping us process and think through uh, these important issues facing the United States today. Rebecca Heinrichs, thanks as always, for joining us on The American Idea. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.